Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm here with Mark Pringle. Hi, Mark. Hello, Barney. Yes, I'm Barney. <laughs> and we're here to talk about everything that's new and groovy on Rocks Back Pages this week, uh, starting with Massive Attack, uh, who announced the 20th or 30th or 40th or 100th anniversary tour of the Mezzanine album, I think starting in January. How many years is it? 1998 it came out. <laughs> you can have to work it out for yourself. Anyway, so uh, as everyone's doing these days, they are touring this album. I imagine playing it in sequence in its entirety and then assorted greatest hits like Unfinished Sympathy after that. So... We thought we'd run uh, two pieces from 1998 uh, about Massive Attack, about Mezzanine, a review of Mezzanine from Mojo, and Ben Thompson um, talking to 3D and Daddy G. Um, We've also thrown in, as a kind of bonus, uh, an audio interview with the great Elizabeth, or Liz Fraser of the Cocteau Twins, who is their special guest on this tour, and of course sang on Mezzanin's probably most famous track, Teardrop. Um, so, um, <laughs> Mark, do you have any strong feelings uh, about well, Massive Attack? Well, you say Mezzanin, I say Mezzanin. <laughs> Uh, let's call the whole thing off. That's because uh, you're much more <laughs> cosmopolitan than me. Um, I mean, I don't have any great strong feelings about the band. I find the Bristol scene pretty interesting in that Bristol is one of Britain's oldest black cities. Uh, it was obviously as well-known Colston Halls, named after a slave trader and so on and so forth. Um, and the roots of black music in... Uh, well, you know, black and black and white music run very, very deep in Bristol, going right back to the the 70s and uh, the uh, early uh, reggae sound system parties, then hip-hop and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's an interesting scene. Uh, as an album, frankly, it bores, bores me to tears, but um, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, no, that's great. And, I mean, I, um, I have mixed feelings about Massive Attack. Uh, there's some things that are brooding and compelling about their sound for me that was there from the beginning. Um, I loved Protection, for example, the title track that Tracy Thorne sang. So she was kind of like the original Liz Fraser. They they, they do use guest singers very well, yeah. I think. Yeah, um, and I, you know, I liked, in principle, the whole trip-hop thing and the Bristol scene, while finding a little dour and humourless. Yeah, um, yep. On Karma Coma, Tri- Tricky was the sort of the guest kind of rapper contributor on that on that track. So Tricky's a big part of this. Um, I mean, I love Nelly Hooper. I love what he did on the first Björk album. So that was interesting to me, that Wild Bunch connection. And... So, you know, Bristol has become one of the great scenes, I think, historically, yep. of, of British music. I certainly vastly preferred it to Britpop. Uh, <laughs> but this album is all about, um, you know, it's all about mood and texture and some sampling and a kind of darkness that, you know, you, you either kind of like that or, or, or you don't. I love the version of... Dennis Brown's song Man Next Door. I think mm-hmm. that's my favourite track on it. Mm-hmm. I also, of course, and we both love Horace Andy. He's one of their, they're great yeah. guest yeah. singers. We met Horace Andy we once, did. didn't we? Yes. Um, uh, and I mean, I think he's just one of the most extraordinary singers in any genre, but certainly one of the greatest Jamaican yeah. singers. I also ever. like the fact that he got a sort of second career out of 
this. You know, it's always, it's always yeah. nice when a guy who probably was very, doing very little at that point in terms of making his own records and so on and so forth got a second wind out of this. So, you know, yeah. admirable. Do I like it? Not terribly. Fair enough. Let's let's leave it at that, and we will move on now uh, to our featured writer of the week. Um, so, as uh, regular listeners will know, we have an almost famous section where where we feature the work of one of our over seven hundred writers on Rocksback Pages, and. Um, uh, we've gone this week for our pal Terry Staunton. Indeed. I mean, he's been more of a pal of yours. I haven't seen Terry for a, for a little while, but I knew him at NME back in the uh, 80s. God forbid, is it that long ago? Um, <laughs> so we love Terry. He's, he's, he's just one of the funniest people I know. Um, our colleague Paul and myself had managed to wangle backstage passes to the what was going to be an Elton John live show of Frequent Constant Apart, but Elton cancelled, I think, but uh, Elvis Costello was there, and we bumped into Terry backstage, and he basically kept us in hysterics for about four hours solid. He's just quite one of the funniest people I've ever met. A sweetheart, very, very nice man, and a very, very good writer. So we've got a, a piece on Nine Inch Nails that he wrote for Enemy in 1991. Um, that's pretty early in the Trent Reznor story. And I think that's, uh, he calls them genuinely frightening. I don't know whether they're still genuinely frightening, but it's uh, it's a great piece, an important piece. Um, there's a retrospective piece on Echo and the Bunny Man, whom Terry has written quite a lot about over the years. Um, uh, we won't debate the uh, the virtues or otherwise of Echo and the Bunny no, Man. No. Um, I, I interviewed <laughs> them back in the day. Um, let's just say they didn't achieve the success of their great rivals, U2. Yeah. Um, and then, and actually, the piece that I think I've enjoyed most that we featured um, on Terry is a piece he wrote in Uncut uh, in the year of. of Mezzanine, as it happens, which is which is is his uh, potted guide to cinema's greatest bands, all those wonderful kind of faux uh, entities that cinema has um, has coughed up over the years. Uh, most famously, of course, Spinal Tap. Almost as famous, uh, the Commitments. But of course, my favourite would be the Carrie Nations in Ross Mayer's immortal film Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. So it, <laughs> this is this is Terry writing about all these. These acts, of course, who didn't properly exist, uh, except that Spinal Tap uh, in the end did sort of yes. properly exist. <laughs> um, um, but so that's that, that's Terry, and there's lot tons more Terry on yeah. rocks. T- yeah. Tons more Terry's all gold on rocks back pages. I'm one one sort of interesting curiosity in your your selection of his pieces is that you didn't focus at all on actually his main area of interest which is a certain sort of British songwriter we're looking at the Nick Lowe's of this world the Elvis Costello's of this world um, Terry has a real passion for for that for those those areas of songwriting I mean you know it's not not areas I'm particularly but he Terry is really, really passionate about those things and can quote at great length entire chunks of lyrics at yeah, <laughs> critical that, moments. Sure, well, uh, that, that absolutely makes sense to me. So the audio interview of the week for Rockstar Pages subscribers is uh, Ms. Roseanne Cash, uh, the I believe the eldest 
daughter's eldest child of Johnny Cash. I, I, I have no idea. Um, I, I think she might be. Um, she's certainly pre-June Carter Cash. She's not June Carter Cash's daughter. Right. She was Vivian uh, somebody's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Vivian oh, we really somebody. know our stuff, don't we? Well um, researched. To yes, yes. I, well, it's an un- unpronounceable uh, yeah. name, even if I could remember uh, it. Uh, and she comes over, um, it's Adam Sweeting interviews her in some London uh, coffee shop, I think, or and um, uh, she comes over just really charming uh, in interview, just delightful, roars with laughter readily. Um, uh, they they seem to get on really well. Um, and she's talking specifically, she just released this album, The River and the Thread, um, which was about the South. Now, she was born and brought up in the South, but she's actually lived in New York for, I don't know, 20 23 years. years. 23. Well, it would be 27 years right. now. Um, so she, and she says in the interview, she even regarded herself as a New Yorker before she went to New York, because culturally it it spoke to her in some sort of way. But then she and her husband, John Leventhal, Leventhal um, took a trip down the south, down, down south, and uh, she started spending a lot of time in the south. She was working at a university and so on and so forth. But um, for a birthday present, for his birthday, he wanted a drive from Memphis to New Orleans down Highway 61. She talks about visiting the Tallahatchie Bridge, the semi-mythological Tallahatchie Bridge and all kinds of things like that. It's it's really interesting stuff. And as I said, she... She comes over as a really, really nice, charming. Yeah, doesn't charming she? Woman. Just I, I, I listened to it last night and really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and she talks about the north-south divide. Yep. I mean, you know, with the, the midterm election results coming in yesterday in America, it was quite interesting to be listening to yep. her take on that as someone who's actually, I think, born in Memphis, um, and but who essentially has kind of reinvented itself as a New Yorker, certainly as a, as a, a liberal New Yorker yes. rather than an <laughs> illiberal Southerner. Yeah. So um, the River and the Thread album, I think, won three Grammys. That's right, know? So yeah. it's, it's, it's been a really important record mm. for her and her husband, uh, John Leventhal, as you say. Um, I mean, I listened to the album itself, and I think we both um, feel slightly ambivalent mm-hmm. about... Uh, Roseanne Cash that her heart's in the right place and she's an interesting woman she's a uh, she's a thoroughly admirable woman but the music uh, feels somehow to me a little bit too perfect and yeah. I felt this about John Leventhal in the past I think he's you know, he, he's got a sort of immaculate touch mm-hmm. I remember thinking this when he was producing um, uh, Sean Colvin mm-hmm. so he produced an album on her called A Few Small Repairs many years ago, and I interviewed her a couple of times in mm-hmm. that year and had the same feelings about her, funnily enough, as, as one might have about Roseanne Cash, that I, I really liked her. I liked the craft of and the, and the production of, of the record. There were good songs on there. But... Um, a bit, blood, bit bloodless. Yeah, it feels just a little too sort of artful and contrived, mm-hmm. and not you know not emotionally raw enough. Mm. There's an interesting moment in the interview where she talks about Neil Young. Yeah, and Adam says Adam Sweeting the interview says something like, "Well, you know, Neil told me you know he doesn't even revise his lyrics. Yeah, he yeah. just it, and and she sort of goes, "Oh, I couldn't do that. I mean, I'm a I'm a chronic reviser. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and and in a way, well, she is, and that's the difference." Yeah. Sometimes with, uh, with with Neil Young it doesn't work, but there's something about Neil's 
kind of almost subconscious, intuitive approach to writing. Mm-hmm. You feel that it's really coming from this quite sort of yeah. dark place. Where, whereas, whereas with with Roseanne and John's music, it's it's maybe a little too cerebral, which is kind of ironic when it's supposed to be about the gritty, earthy, funky sound. Yes, yes, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, it was interesting when we listened to this in the office a couple of days back. Um, one song had a pedal steel in it and instantly perked you up because it had some instrument which sort of broke through this overall kind of slightly flat tone of immaculate production, you know. Um, and, um, yeah, you know, it, it was nice enough. But anyway, the interview's great. Mm. She's, she's lovely yeah. and it's really, really worth listening yeah. to. I don't have a problem with sort of perfection, Per se, don't you? Actually, I don't because <laughs> because sometimes it really works for me. I think of someone who, you know, is loosely in the same Americana bag as, say, Roseanne Cash, uh, and that and that's um, Alison Krauss, whose music is 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 sort of so immaculate, mm-hmm. and many would say a sort of airbrushed new grass or an airbrush <laughs> version of you know it doesn't have that kind of you know it's not roscoe holcomb yeah. it's not it's not raw appalachia but for me alison krauss is such an extraordinary singer yes. that i could just listen to her sing almost anything i don't think roseanne is really a distinctive enough voice that's fair for for it to sort of you know for it to work, yeah, yeah. for it you to be able to say, I, I can accept it. I, I, yeah, so I think that's how we kind of feel uh, yeah. about Roseanne. Um, and I mean, you might one might also say, going back, that she paved the way for people like Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift's transition from country into pop, because what Roseanne was doing in the 80s was, was kind of bridging quite formulaic pop rock with a kind of country mm. twang. There were some great songs. I mean, Seven, seven Year Heartache, I Don't Know Why You Don't Want Me. These, these are songs I remember yep. that, that, that I love. They sound a little bit generic now. You know, I suspect Terry Staunton's quite a fan of Roseanne Cash. <laughs> we'll get Terry in sometime we'll get, we'll, and we'll, we'll ask him. We so, so there we go. That's, that's the audio for this week. And, and now we will turn our attention to the cornucopia of content that has found its way into the RBP library. Um, and I'm going to bring in our chief archivist at this point. <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's a, as, as always, there's a lot of really good stuff this week. Um, a few things really caught my eye. Maureen Cleave, who we got on board a couple of years back, um, very hard to find her writing because she wrote for the Evening Standard, which, as far as we're aware, hasn't been archived anywhere. Famously wrote about the Beatles. But she had a few pieces run in American newspapers. Uh, One was um, about Joan Byers visiting England, and she's she's got a nice kind of sharpness, as Maureen Cleave said. It's said in Time magazine in 1962 that she often wore canvas clothing and lived in a hut in the desert with mud oozing under the door. She was a darling of the smart, young, intelligent Americans who seemed to be doing and thinking all the right things. What one heard of her was admirable but unendearing. Then Miss Byers arrived in London to do a singing tour of Britain. She has indeed striking good looks and a voice of unearthly beauty. But she also has a loud, hearty, reassuring laugh and some agreeably indiscreet r- remarks to make about other folk singers. So... Maureen describes how she's won over by 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 the character of of, of Joan in the flesh, yes. rather than the image of her as a slightly pious. Yes, um, and it's, 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 it's you know Maureen writes like a dream. It's a, it's a really great, really nice piece. Great. 
Um, another piece, again, from this from 66, um, the always admirable Dawn James interviewing Steve Marriott. And it's quite interesting because we forget it now, but a lot of people thought that pop music, pop music with capital P, in 65, 66, was in something of a crisis, that the old bands had been selling lots of pop music were breaking up or whatever. And Steve Marriott, actually, as an insider and a musician, flatly contradicts this viewpoint. Um, uh, Steve doesn't agree with pop critics who say that the pop scene is dead. He suggests they're looking at the wrong places. In fact, it's never been more exciting than it is right now, he said. So much is happening. The Revolver LP by the Beatles has spurred everyone on yet again. The standards are getting higher and higher, thanks to them and groups like the Beach Boys. Great new sounds are emerging. And he's absolutely right. You know, the 66 is probably one of the key years when um, uh, the, the album becomes an entity rather than the single and so on and so forth. And so it's, it's, really, it's really interesting reading that debate yeah. going on in 1966. Yeah, I saw that quote you posted on the Facebook group and I thought, well, yeah, that really does tally with the sense I think we all have that uh, the Beatles, Dylan, the Beach Boys and others uh, really did start to use... The, the album yes. as as yeah. you know as as more than just a collection of of discrete songs. Uh, abs- absolutely, and so it's very interesting that Stephen Marriott, who is in a pop group, I mean the Small Faces were sure. regarded as an out and out pop group, is looking around him and seeing all this very interesting stuff. And a lot about eighteen months later, his band do Ogden's Not Gone Flake, which is a One of the great, great sort of concept. Yeah. albums, isn't it? Really? Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and he's a guy, he's in the scene, but he's aware of this new series this, this, and this new brilliance sort of emerging. Um, so that's great. Uh, moving on to 73, Andrew Bailey and Rolling Stone interviewing Marianne Faithful. Um, it's pretty sad stuff. I mean, she is, she claims at that point that she's off the heroin, but, you know, was she, was she we don't know. Um, and it's basically about her as a recovering addict, the whole, the whole piece. Um, and she says, I know it sounds absurdly naive to say that Swinburne and Baudelaire and people like that affected my thinking, but I know they did. Even when I was in hospital, I was still reading Edgar Allan Poe and getting a strange kind of decadent thrill out of my situation. I didn't just want to die. I wanted to die in a maelstrom way, to take the De Quincey path to its extreme. I know it's extremely childish, but that's what I thought. It's not as if I produced any. Not as if I produced anything. At least Baudelaire wrote Les Fleurs de Mar, du Mal. Of course, I didn't go into it with the idea of producing anything, but I did go into it with these Dorian Gray opium dens and things in my mind. Uh, so, <laughs> well, I love the idea of blaming heroin addiction on Algernon Swinburne. <laughs> It had to be done. <laughs> yeah, um, that great junkie. Yeah. Uh, but, no, I mean, uh, I, I suppose many people like Marian would say uh, that something like Le Fleur du Mal had some input into their idea that doing something like heroin mm. was cool. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, and you know, so those were those were Marianne's sitting on the wall years, weren't they? That's right, sitting on the wall. Lots you Road. know where that wall yeah, Lots was. Road. Is it, it's <laughs> yes. Stadium Street or Lots Road? Mm, is, um, yeah, and she's also and she talks in the article about street scoring in Gerard Street and so on and so forth in Soho. And, That's right. Um, and, you know, and she, she's she's pretty much on her uppers at that. She that, really was that just point. she just became a kind of West End junkie, yeah. of the kind you would see yeah. walking up. The Charing Cross Road, Abs- or along Shaftesbury Avenue, in that in that era. Absolutely. And, I mean, it's timely because uh, she has her new uh, Keatsian named album, uh, Negative Capability. Just, uh, in fact, I just saw 
there's a video that's just gone up on YouTube of, of um, that other great substance abuser Nick Cave interviewing Marianne <laughs> about this new album. Uh, he he has input into this record. Yeah. He's written a song for her. Um, she gets everyone to write songs yes. for her every time. Bless her. You yeah. know, and Marianne calls. Marianne needs a song. But so there's some footage of Marianne um, in the studio singing and, and, then, and then Nick speaking with her. Yeah. Um, I mean... It, it, um, it, it, I used to be a friend of, uh, well, I still am a friend of uh, John Mayle's sons uh, when I was at school. And we'd go around to the, their mum's place, their place, their mum's place, and their mum would answer the door and say, you've got to be very quiet. Marianne's upstairs and she's not feeling very well, which basically meant she was nodding out and smack up mm. in the bedrooms and stuff. And feeling uh, very well. And she eventually flooded their house by nodding out in the bath with the bath still running. And that, I think that's when they turfed her out. But anyway, well, she's, but she's turned into a fairly magnificent grand dame of British pop, hasn't she? And, you know, and her survival was an entirely welcome thing. And, um, Absolutely. And she's made one of two really decent records. She's a great diva. She's she a is. great sort of lovey in her way. Yeah. You know, <laughs> this sort of the, the aristocratic sort of element. Yeah. It was irresistible to Mick Jagger. Well, quite. And it's still irresistible. Yeah. To people like Nick Cave. <laughs> Bless her. Yeah. So, uh, right, moving on a couple of years, uh, Kraftwerk's first tour, I believe, of the UK in 1975. And Carl Dallas, who uh, normally wrote about folk music for the Melody Maker, but he had a sort of sideline passion for crowd rock, and he does a very, very good interview with them. And they, they just come up with a couple of really interesting lines. So, um, we're not part of the musical world, anyway. Düsseldorf is not a musical town, and we're not part of the musical movement. That's Ralph Hutter speaking. Um, the musical movement, I think he's referring to Krautrock. He's, he's specifically divorcing... Which was already but, a, a term yes. in, in use yeah, in 75, yeah. for sure. Um, he just also said that the, the music plays itself sometimes, because with repeated rhythms we can go into a sort of trance. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely right. And uh, it's a nice quote from Florian Schneider uh, saying, although we do nothing, we always feel like dancing. We feel our whole body and our whole nervous system through our fingers and through them we feel our music. It's a a great snapshot of a very interesting band um, at a very interesting point in their career. Autobahn had just been a big hit, what, a year before? Or that year, 70, maybe it's 75. I think it was that year. It was yeah. either 74 or 75. Yep. I think it was may have been released in 74, but it was a hit in America, of course, mm. in 75, I think. Weirdly, that song put me off Kraftwerk for years. I can understand um, that. It, it, It's kind of irritating. It really irritates it's me. certainly not my favourite Kraftwerk song. Uh, and, you know, I've actually gone back and revisited them in recent years and found great swathes of really interesting stuff. It's funny how the other artist where that happened was Kate Bush. I couldn't abide Wuthering Heights as a record. Mm. And so I just dismissed her entirely for years. And again, she's someone I've revisited and found really some really fabulous stuff in her Mm. back catalogue. So, you know... Don't yeah. be like me in that respect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Give, give it, give it a little time. Don't yeah. dismiss artists too prematurely. <laughs> what have you got for me next? Uh-huh. Oh, this is brilliant. Uh, Susan Shapiro reviewing uh, what was claimed to be Johnny Thunders and Heartbreakers' last ever gig. Though in fact, I do believe they resurrected. This Village Voice, nineteen seventy-eight. That's right. right. And uh, she just she's withering about the appalling state. Talking about junkies, the appalling state Thunders has got into. She says, but the man is weak, defeated, unable to quell his morbid instincts. 
His body still moves, barely, in galvanic twitches, but his vacant eyes are on a nod. His skin is wasted grey like he lives under a rock. Then the very last paragraph says, there, is no, there was no encore. The MC tried to arouse one, but the crowd laid low, even knowing they would never see the heartbreakers perform again. Nobody was fooled, not the band, not the customers. It was a depressing debacle, the night Johnny Thunders died. Except he didn't Except actually he didn't die. die. <laughs> but he did die prematurely <laughs> later, yes, of course, in yeah. New Orleans. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's interesting to me because I didn't see Johnny and the, and the Heartbreakers at that time, but I did see them in London in the early 80s. And I, I found him oddly mesmerising uh, for a number of reasons I won't go into. Yeah. But I did see a few of the gigs that he and Jerry Nolan were doing. Both yeah. had been the New York Dolls, of course. Um, they'd do these gigs around London, um, you know, essentially to pay for their heroin habits. And there were nights that were just completely disastrous. Yeah. And the, there were some which just still had this kind of ersatz, decadent kind of you know glamour about yeah. them almost and i managed to persuade him to do an interview um but it required the scoring of a quarter gram of heroin which i then had to submit as expenses to mme <laughs> i've written about this and i've i've recycled this story so many times but hell why not do it once again and, and I talk about it in a book called Never Enough. So the day that Johnny Thunders came to tea um, in a flat where Nick Cave lived, I, I really, you can just join the dots, really. <laughs> um, uh, Johnny was almost kind of gouching out during the conversation. So the piece I ended up with was, was lacking in great quotage, as we would say here. But, and then I still remember putting them, putting a, an expenses claim down on deputy editor Phil McNeil's desk and, and him looking at me, looking daggers at me. £25, kilogram of heroin, Johnny Thunder's interview. Um, anyway, Johnny, um, what, what can I say about Johnny yeah. Thunder's? I and mean, he kind of took that idea of the kind of, of, of the fucked up, Junkies. So Keith, now, Keith now we've 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 managed to uh, get rid of our clean lyric status in one fell swoop. But Johnny was kind of like a version of Keith Richards, yeah. with I don't know maybe a little bit of James Williamson in there. Yeah. You know, so he took that kind of Stone Stooges thing and um, and just. He had just this amazing kind of, kind of Brooklyn, Italian, New York attitude mm-hmm. as well. I mean, he was f- he was fabulous in his way. Not the world's greatest guitarist, but those Dolls riffs and even yeah, stuff yeah. he did on, on Heartbreakers and his solo things. You know, they they really laid down some kind of template, certainly for Steve Jones and yeah, the Sex yeah, Pistols. Yeah, yeah. You know, the Dolls were so important. Thunders was a was a true kind of punk junky punk icon. Yeah. I I actually did see the, the Heartbreakers in. Was it the music machine in Camden Town, I think, in 77, something like that? Uh, they weren't much good. It was probably just a bad night. Jerry Nolan was terrific. He was a very, very sharp... Good drummer. Good, good, good drummer. Um, but, you know, I just, for me, I just thought they were kind of an ersatz rolling stones in a way. And, um, you yeah, know, um, I wanted to like them. I went away disappointed. But anyway, I think yeah. this is a great, really interesting live review of a man in a particularly bad place. Uh, uh, last thing I think I'll talk about mm. is uh, a live review of Swayed by Simon Price. Now, one of the kind of... We touched on this when we were talking about Neil Kulkarni's, uh review of... What was it last week? I can't remember. Anyway, the, uh, uh, Wu-Tang Forever. That's Wu-Tang Forever. 
it, uh, it's mad enthusiasm. I kind of don't think that objectivity has much place in rock and roll journalism. That 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 um, uh, the stuff I like to read as part of my job is the stuff which has that rush of joy and energy, or venom, anger, and so on and so forth. Um, you do like your venom. I do like my venom. This is great. This is. Um, Basically, Simon Price falling in love with Suede, a fairly early London gig in 1992. And he ends up saying, best new band in Britain? They'll never live it down. But just watch them live it up. Walking on the wild side with an E at the end, as an Oscar. <laughs> Riding the chariot of the gods through the last days of Constantinople. Generally booting the grime of the world in the crotched ears. Oh, you pretty things. And it's just, it's, it's, fa- it's fabulous, you know. And, 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 and it, 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 you know, he just pulls you into the room watching this band. And the, the band of massively confident and flamboyant. He talks about Bernard Butler as being the best guitarist he'd seen since Jimi Hendrix. And there's only one when he saw Jimi Hendrix, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's not objective Reportage. No. It's just. It's almost fandom. You know. It's it's fanboy hyperbole yeah. of the which, of the highest order. Which I I like. Which uh, we like a bit of now and then. I do. There's I, room for it. You know, I mean, I, I I do think that 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 there's a tendency, particularly, I don't know, certain American magazines where there's a sort of idea that there is an objective truth about a, a record, and I don't really believe that or a band I, th- I don't think there are objective truths about music I think that, that it, it, our responses are always much more visceral and much more immediate than that and mm. uh, it's, it's, it, it's something that I, I really enjoy reading and, yeah. you know, it's, it was, it's yeah. great I, I just I, I got a buzz reading the, reading the live review if yeah. I'd read that yeah, time, yeah, yeah. I'd have gone to see Suede the next yeah. opportunity I'd have got well, I, I did like Suede. I, you know, I you know, broadly do uh, like Suede's music, and I um, I interviewed them very early on and saw them very early mm-hmm. on. And even if I thought, you know, the Drowners and Metal Mickey were were sort of hodgepodges of bits of Bolan and Bowie, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it seemed like this kind of retro glam synthesis i still think they're pretty great records yes um you know and um you know they're still going and they're still interesting and um i've heard that brett anderson's book is really good coal yep. black mornings i think it's um so in you know i certainly preferred them to oasis they just seem to be well much more kind of um like what Simon Price just wrote about yes. you wouldn't write that kind of thing about about no. Oasis. No. There was there was nothing about I, I, I um, mean, Chariots of the Gods there. You know, the, you know, we just kind of sort of dismissed Britpop earlier, but, uh, but the Pulp and Suede both brought an enormous amount of style and interesting stuff to the party. To some extent, you could say that about Blur. I mean, mm. beyond that, there was just swathes of ghastly band blokes with guitars just churning out sort of yeah you know yeah it was really numbing stuff yeah. i think and i mean i have to say i, I thought uh, oasis were pretty we won't get into that now it's <laughs> just we haven't got along enough i so um i i would just want to comment on a, a few other things i noticed sure. and um at least skim read and um the first piece in the list is is by jeffrey cannon yep. who you know we're so delighted to have i mean jeffrey was one of the first uh you know uh as it were, broadsheet mainstream yeah. writers yeah. on pop culture yeah. in the in the wake of, of, of people like Colin McInnes. Mm-hmm. So there were writers in the fifties, but Jeffrey was was one of the first sort of Guardian slash New Society That's writers right. to take 
this new kind of teen phenomenon yeah. seriously yeah. and not just be terribly kind of high-minded high, high and aloof about it. Absolutely. So it's a very interesting piece from 1963 about, you know, the, the teen scene and pop with a capital P, yeah. uh, which, which is great. Well, he, he essentially sort of defends the right of teenagers to have their scene, to love this stuff. And, um, yeah. you know, he says, you know, what's wrong? Why are you, or yeah. you, that is you being the establishment of the adults, being so disproven? We've got to remember that um, if you were a teenager in the early 60s, Chances are your parents have been actively through the war and through um, austerity. And Britain was a pretty bolted-down sort of place at that time. And um, there was kind of very ponderous notions of how how you should behave and so on and so forth. And so uh, Jeffrey's just kind of welcoming this new sort of fabulous enthusiasm for, for stuff. And also, you know, don't knock the music that they're shrieking about either no, you no, know completely it's, it's, it's terrific piece two uh, not one but two pieces um that uh, concern the great lydia lunch uh, lydia also <laughs> sort of you know swims into that whole can of kind of nick cave johnny thunders and all of that stuff and i i knew lydia a little bit back in the early 80s as well and um always thought she was you know terrific value and there's a great so there's a review of um, of Harry Cruz, or the Harry Cruz, named after that sort of scurrilous beat writer. So she had this group, yeah. Harry Cruz, and they played the Mean Fiddler in 1988. Um, so that was one of Lydia's many musical iterations. Yeah. Um, but there's also quite a <clears throat> substantial interview with Lydia by Everett True from Plan B magazine um, from 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it, she's just a great interview. Yeah. And... It just reminded me of how transgressive and out there she was mm-hmm. and the risks she took and, you know, how, um, yeah, just what a sort of um, important uh, avant-garde yeah. figure she was. Yeah. Um, you know, teenage, I, 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 teenage Jesus yeah, and the Jerks were, were Eight-Eyed Spy. Were I'm, great. I, I'm, I'm a fan. She's, mm. she's made a lot of records over the over a number we, of we years. We love Queen of Siam. We love of Queen of Siam. is a fantastic mm. record. And... Uh, I just find her so interesting. She's part of a really fabulous New York scene, sort of no-wave scene yeah. in the, the, the late 70s, very early 80s. Mm. And, uh, you, you know, at a time when post-punk was interesting, but frequently pretty dour, I personally found something enormously invigorating in the stuff that's coming out of New York, whether it's James Chance and the Contortions. Absolutely. Uh, uh, um, too many freaks. Who's, uh, yeah, the Bush Tetris. Bush Tetris. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, uh, who they were friends of hers. Creeps, actually. Too many too creeps. Many creeps. Yes. Yeah. yeah, not enough. Too, not enough freaks. Too many too creeps. creeps. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I, mm. I have a lot of time for Lydia Lunch. I think she's, yeah. she's really smart. another great New York lady. Uh, just on pass on mentioning this. There's a great. Uh, there's a great interview with Cherry Vanilla. Oh right, um, from 2011 by Rob Hughes, and uh, it just goes into you know all, all the outrageous things that she got up to when she was working for Main Man, That's right, and, yeah. uh, Bowie, and um, her 
very important role in that New York scene, yep. both as a as a publicist, as a singer, as a scenester, as a well, self confessed groupie. Yeah, uh, and I think she had just published her her autobiography right. in that year. So, um, so Cherry Vanilla that, that's worth a read too. And then just um, a few other things that I loved um, that, that I sort of supervised, as it were, in terms of getting them into the library was was a, was a was a piece about George Jones's great album the grand tour uh, by andrew <laughs> muller um so it's a retrospective appraisal of, of of one of jones's greatest records um and you know i think we both might broadly agree that george jones was the greatest country singer male country singer of them all probably i i would i would say that i'd say specifically of ballads mm. uh, i'm less interested in his up-tempo stuff um but he was just the most astonishingly soulful singer of, of, of ballads like Good Year for the Roses, songs like that. Um, uh, just, uh, uh, but his extraordinary voice was pinched, very white, you, you, you know. It's an extraordinary sound. You know? He does extraordinary things yeah. with his voice, yeah. you know, that no other country singer has ever done, yeah. I think. And you know, he gets major props from... From a lot of um, you know, soul and yep. blues singers yep. in America, you know, he's kind of like the idea of the white man's blues. I was probably introduced to him, oddly enough, by Elvis Costello. In that it was Elvis Costello's almost blue album, country album that he cut in uh, Nashville with, yes. um, and that had "Good Year for the Roses" on it. So I sort of retraced my steps f- from from there, and, and that's where I that, that was my gateway drug to. George Jones. Well, the Grand Tour is a sort of concept album, and the idea is that you are taking a grand tour of uh, of this house where um, you know a, a divorce is taking place. <laughs> <laughs> he's walking you around and showing you everything that he's going to have to either sell or give to his wife. I mean, um, it's, yeah. it's great. I mean, um, when my old band was recording in Muscle Shoals in 1987, we used this bass player called Bob Ray. Who played on Patches by Clarence Carter was one of uh, the famed subsequent rhythm sections, and he had moved up to. He was basically become a Nashville kind of A-list bass player, and he re- recounted cutting an album with George Jones where they never saw him. He, they'd come to the studio every day, fill in their musicians' union forms, get paid, and go home because George just never showed up. Mm. Uh, yeah, no show Jones, no show Jones. Possum, yeah, Possum, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, you know, I was lucky enough to see George Jones perform once at the Hammersmith Odeon with Tammy, Tammy Wynette. So they did, they did a, you know, it was like, uh, yeah. Oh, I mean, they wow. did, yeah. That sounds fantastic. Uh, and, and, and I mean, I have to say, so this would have been 90s, mid 90s. Mm-hmm. He was still singing brilliantly, mm. really up to the end. It, yeah. well, he, uh, despite everything he'd done to his mind and body <laughs> with drugs and drink he um i think he's he was i don't know if he was sober at that point but he was singing like a dream and yeah. i th- don't think he ever didn't sing well except when he didn't show up at all <laughs> <laughs> that'll do it yeah about yeah a great voice a great voice so that that's you know those are among the uh the, the gems um, that are on offer uh, to you as a subscriber um uh, come and have a look at Rock's Back Pages and see what else we've got there. We add every week, we add a minimum of 50 interviews and reviews. Um, 
and there's just uh, a, a wide variety, very eclectic selection yeah. um, every week, masterminded by by Mr. Mark Pringle. Um, and so we are going to love you and leave you now with um, a, a a short excerpt from the interview with Roseanne Cash by Adam Sweeting. This was done about four years ago. And Mark, just tell us what she's talking about. She's talking about revisiting the South and the Tallahatchie Bridge. And uh, yeah, that's what she's talking about. Take it away, Roseanne. It's it's a strange and peculiar place. Um, But not everyone. I mean, my husband is a native New Yorker and he's always... But he's always been mesmerized by Southern music yeah. and the, the myths of the South, you know, because they're very rich. Besides the bad stereotypes, the Delta gave rise to, I mean, every roots musician owes a debt to the Delta and the Appalachia. And the writers who came from there, William Faulkner, Harper Lee, Tennessee Williams, you know, you start thinking about what ha- what is it about this little piece of the earth? You're talking about Mississippi, Arkansas, Tennessee. Mm. But it was incredibly inspiring to go back and kind of see these places for the first time with new eyes. And see them through John's eyes, too. It's not that he had never been to the South, but... We were immersed in a lot of different things in these trips since 2011. Yeah, yeah. So what made you take these trips? A couple of things. It was like a, a perfect storm of reasons to go down south. <laughs> um, one is that Arkansas State University bought my, wanted to buy my dad's oh, boarding home. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So they asked if I would be involved, and I said yes. So I started going down to see the house. Uh, organize these fundraisers to restore the house and happened to meet up with my cousins in Memphis seeing my dad's house it was almost falling to the ground started thinking about how hard my grandmother's life was no electricity Raising seven children, picking. This is really a pretty basic kind of house. Yeah. Well, a cottage. It was a cottage, yeah. And then at the same time, I was going to Alabama. My friend Natalie Channon was teaching me to sew. She has this beautiful workshop there. And like all of these things started happening. And then John says, you know, for my birthday, I'd love to drive down Highway 61. So we went from Memphis to New Orleans in four days, played a show at Tipitina's in New Orleans at the end of that trip. And it was just, all of it was like being immersed in this these elemental, mythic situations, music, characters. When we got away from, back away from it and had some objectivity, we started writing the songs. What is this about? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it means. I, I just know it. It's sort of mythic, sort of. It is thing mythic. About it. Yeah. And I thought that it would be this enormous structure, you know, yeah. overpowering. Yeah. It's just this little bridge. Just a little bridge. Totally empty. We sat yeah. on it for half an hour. And then John snapped this picture from behind that became the album cover. No. Oh. It was unbelievable to go there. <laughs> but it's near Money Road and... And Robert Johnson's Grave. Yeah, so and where lovely. Emmett Till was murdered. Uh-huh. 
you know, the civil rights movement. Yeah, began. yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, it was it was like a vortex. You can't understand why so much came from this one spot. Oh. <laughs> and the, then down the road is Dockery Farms. Do you have you heard of Dockery Farms? It was it was the largest cotton plantation in Mississippi in the I guess 30s 40s. And uh, all of the great blues musicians worked on this cotton farm. Helen Wolf, Charlie Patton, Pop Staples. And they would sit on the porch of the juke joint at night and play music and pick cotton all day. I know, I know. And it's not a functioning cotton uh, plantation anymore. But this friend of ours whose grandfather was Will Dockery, who owned it, is restoring it. And I'm actually going to go down and play a concert there this summer. You just heard an excerpt from Roseanne Cash in conversation with Adam Sweeting, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The presenters were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find all the articles featured on the show and thousands more, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.